0: Hello my friends and welcome back to Gardo Goes Geek. I'm your host Gardo and on today's episode we're going to be taking a look at the work of Alan Moore and especially focusing in on both the comic and film of V for Vendetta. Alan Moore is a name I've mentioned several times in this podcast um, in previous episodes. He's primarily known as a comic book writer. Um, Most of his work has involved um, his own creations, sometimes as pastiches of other characters, um, but more often than not, his own ideas of characters. Um, Some are within the superhero genre of comic books, um, either played straight, for example, with his work as Supreme, um, Rob Liefeld's Awesome Entertainment, Um, or done as a a deconstruction. For example, his work with Watchmen at uh, DC Comics. Um, But he has also done some other superhero work for DC, including Swamp Thing and, most famously, Batman's The Killing Joke, um, which I have given my own thoughts on in a previous issue. I'm not a huge fan. Um, He's also worked for a lot of British comics. He... um, He did some work for Marvel UK, working on the Captain Britain series. Um, He did a a very good run on Captain Britain, to be fair, Um, full of some of the sort of things that you would see later in his work, some very high concept stuff. Um, He did work for the Doctor Who magazine. He did work for a comic series called Warrior. Um, He was responsible for the creation of the Marvel Man character, which was an adaptation of the Fawcett Comics Captain Marvel, um, before moving to the States, where he worked on, like I said, many pieces of work. Um, he's very, very famous particularly for... He's also worked for 2000 AD as well, um, he worked, where he worked on The Ballad of Halo Jones, especially. Um, but yes, he's most famous for his run on Swamp Thing, and... Um, But most especially for four major graphic novels of his own creation. And they are Watchmen, V for Vendetta, um, From Hell, which is about the uh, Jack the Ripper killings, and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Moore himself is a quite a complex individual. He's um, an occultist. He's an outspoken anarchist. Um, he has very, um, very outspoken on his political views. Um, for example, he withdrew um, one of his stories from a publication after they posted a negative article about the place of homosexual homosexuals in the community um back in the 80s so you know he's he's very anti-government and um is very much a voice of the people kind of person which has led to him taking on a bit of celebrity status um and he's known for being um very impactful on the on several other um major figures including neil gaiman who cites alan moore as one of his uh, one of his uh, idols and inspirations. Um, Alan Moore's writing is very good. Very complex. He always described writing as being. Not something you should half-arse. Um, he, he said you should give your very, very best to writing. You should treat it as something that you, ha- you have to do. And you have to always put your best into. Um and that's very prominent in his work. Like, if you if you ever get to see some of his scripts, um, it's not uncommon to see a whole page of writing describing everything he wants in a particular panel. Um, his work is very, very, very structured um, and very deliberate. Nothing in an Alan Moore comic is there by accident. Everything that is there... Reflects what he wants to put in the comic book um and he's also very very aware that a lot of his work is within the medium of comic books um and he purposely structures it towards that medium um so for example in the case of Watchmen Watchmen is a very very dense very tightly plotted um story um It was originally going to be 32 pages. The page count got bumped up to 40. Um, So for the final eight pages and all of the earlier issues up until issue 11 of Watchmen, he filled the final eight pages with um, uh, ancillary material, uh, which builds on the world of Watchmen, but is usually presented in a different form. For example, the first two issues... Uh, feature excerpts from Hollis Mason's autobiography, Under the Hood, um, detailing the original 1940s heroes, the Minutemen, um, who appear in flashbacks within the body of the Watchman itself. And the intention of these issues being so packed with content was so that the, the wait for the next issue... Would become part of the experience where the reader could sit and let things um you know let the the contents of the issue sort of ruminate in their mind um and it's very very good at what he's very, very good at what he does um a lot of his works are available in collected volumes now, but even then I wouldn't necessarily recommend sitting and reading something like Watchmen or V for Vendetta entirely in one sitting. Um, You are supposed to let these things sit with you and um, that's, that's very clearly part of the experience that Alan Moore intended. Now, as I said, Alan Moore writes for the medium of comic books and his Coin comic book work is, as I said, definitely what he is the most well-known for. Um, His comics are generally amazing. Um, I've enjoyed pretty much every piece of comic work I've read by Alan Moore. Um, Even the ones I'm not necessarily a huge fan of, like The Killing Joke, for example, I do see the merits in it. The problems I have with something like The Killing Joke are more the effect it's had on DC Comics in general, um, but I kind of tackled that in my previous episode episode about DC's uh, Battle of Hope and Cynicism. Um, something like Watchmen, for example, um, is very bleak and is a, a perfect deconstruction of the superhero medium. Um, But it's specifically a a deconstruction of the superhero medium in 1986 using the sort of tropes that we would come to expect from comic books of that era. Um, I mean, you know, this was published a year after Crisis on Infinite Earths, which was a very, very high concept um, science fiction comic book book Epic, so um, you know, having something like the giant squid at the end of Watchmen, you know, destroy New York is something that you can tell it, you can put into a comic book because it's what people expect, but it's also in there as a satire on the Cold War and um, you know, right wing politics and ev- everything like that is in there as well. It's very, very well done, um. And it works so well because it's it's kind of self-contained as well. Now, the quality of Alan work Alan Moore's work means that it is very rightfully beloved, um, in circles of comic book fans, and even beyond. I mean, for example, Watchmen made one of uh, Time Magazine's hundred greatest novels of all of the twentieth century. You know, so the works are, are are beloved for a reason. And whenever you have a work that is beloved within a certain medium, whether it's a comic book, novel, or a stage show, there is always an attempt to bring it to another medium. And usually that medium involves a film. Now... As a result, there are films of Alan Moore's work. Alan Moore is very outspoken, uh, quite famously so, about the use of his work in films. He, as I said, he writes for the medium of comic books. He's very aware that he is writing a comic book, and his stories are designed to be experienced in that medium, as far as he sees it. So he sees films based on his work as being unnecessary and being a waste and ruining the original intent of his work. And you can see where he comes from with this. Um, Watchmen, for example. Zack Snyder directed Watchmen. Um it was released in 2009, um, but it airs very, very closely to the film. It is set in the original setting of the film. It, um, it, it essentially uses the, the panels of the graphic novel almost like storyboards for the film, um, with the exception of some aspects. Um, and it does turn it into... Something that is very, very close to watching to to experience in the comic book, but at the same time is an inferior product compared to the original comic book. I, I I'm more forgiving of the Watchmen film than a lot of my peers are. Um I don't dislike it. I love the opening title sequence, as I think many, many people do, which is one of the the few elements in the film that is new and designed purely for a cinema experience. I think the attempts to air very closely to the side of the comic book um, are impressive. Um, And for example, my favourite chapter in the original Watchmen graphic novel is chapter four, I believe it is, which focuses on Dr. Manhattan on Mars uh, and is more of a, a, a break in the story as we see how Dr. Manhattan's powers work. Um, with the idea of him experiencing all of time at once. Um, And I find it a very, very interesting chapter of the story. And I think it's done very, very well in the film because it follows that depiction exactly and... I do think that that chapter is so essential to understanding the character of Dr. Manhattan that I am glad it makes it to the film with very, very little change. However, it's a bit more jarring than just sitting and watching the comic, uh, you know, reading the comic, or even watching the motion comic, for example. Um... So it does come across as a, a sort of a worse version of the comic in the film. Uh, the other main incidents that a lot of people will take it umbrage with uh, with the film is it changes the ending. It's um, instead of using the the giant alien squid, which is sort of built up in the background of the Watchman story. Um, they instead, Ozymandias instead uses a... Um, device that dr manhattan built for him earlier in the film to launch a pulse um the thing is that device the setup for that device is in the comic book as well um so i think it works better as a use and it's also used in more places than new york it's used in new york and um moscow and london and a few other cities around the world <sighs> To make it look like Doctor Manhattan has attacked them, rather than some alien squid, and I don't hate that change. I think that change works for the film. I think it's a necessary point of adaptation, and definitely a necessary point in uh, mo- you know the film cinema landscape of two thousand and nine, where comic book films were still serious you know, the comic book films we'd had at that point were the X-Men, the Spider-Mans, you know, the first Iron Man, the MCU really hadn't taken off and explored the strangeness that comes from the comics and the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight film was only the year before. So we we were in the middle of a very grounded take on superheroes. So going for that over the squid I think was a good idea, although it does render one of the elements that is kept, um, the the giant links that Ozymandias has following him around, Bubastis, it makes him more egregious, as Bubastis' whole purpose was to, in the original comic book, was to sort of highlight the genetic engineering that Ozymandias was capable of, which would explain why he create how he created the squid. Um, so without that, that that inclusion is a bit more jarring. Um, I understand the squid is kept for the Watchmen series, which I have yet to watch, um, because as from what I'm told, the Watchmen series is a sequel to the comic rather than a sequel to the film. So I'm very intrigued in watching that at some point. Um, but yeah, there are other films obviously based on Alan Moore's work. Um, from Hell got an adaption in 2001. Um, it's very loosely adapted from the original From Hell graphic novel. Um, and tries to go for a twist ending. Whereas the, the killer is known uh, much earlier in the... The comic book almost immediately and uh, From Hell was not a particularly beloved film it's definitely passable and an interesting take on the story um, but it's a pretty forgettable film overall um, whereas the comic is very bizarre in places and very historiographical um you know the 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 comic book addresses not just the the jack the ripper murders but also the society at the time that allowed jack the ripper to flourish and yeah there's a, a lot going on in the comic um for better or worse and 2003 uh, a couple of years later saw the release of league of extraordinary gentlemen or lxg as the film became known uh much to its detriment it was trying to be sort of like a victorian x men and it was oh the i rewatched it a couple of days ago in preparation for this and it's definitely watchable in places as like a pure popcorn film But it is not good. Um, Characters are all over the place. Um, You know, the the concept behind League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is um, a world of fictional characters who are kind of brought together as a a group, like sort of on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, But the film version deviates wildly um from the comic um and is yes very very bizarre in places um has a very very good steampunk aesthetic and it tries to do a lot of its special effects practically um which are two achievements that it has it has a lot of quite good british character actors Um, But it's perhaps more famous as the film that made Sean Connery quit acting forever. Um, The director Stephen Norrington quit directing forever on the aftermath. And it's the film that made Alan Moore uh, have his name taken off any any future adaptations of his work. As well as even some future reprints of his work where he's literally just named as the original writer now. But the topic of today's uh, episode is the following film, which was released in 2005 in America and 2006 uh, everywhere else. And that is V for Vendetta. Um, v for Vendetta is a comic book. It was published in Warrior Magazine in the UK and I believe republished by DC in uh, under their Vertigo line in America. Um, it is set in an authoritarian um future England. Uh, I believe it was set in nineteen ninety-seven uh when it came out. Uh, the film version is set in the twenty twenties. Um and it features the character of V, a, a revolutionary um who opposes this government. And wants to reawaken the people in rebellion against it. Uh, and especially focuses on his relationship to a young protege named Evie Hammond. And how he tries to sway her to his side. Um, I'm going to be going over for the rest of this episode the comic book and the film. Examining the, the plots of both. The differences between them. Um, because I do think it is the best adaptation of Alan Moore's work in some respects. Although I do acknowledge that the two works are very, very different. Um, but with it being early November and the, you know, the film centering more around Bonfire night, uh, with the 5th of November and the uh comic book eventually coming to a close on the early part of the 7th and the 8th of November. The release date for this episode, the 6th of November, puts it right firmly in the middle. So, yes, let's uh, let's delve deeper into V for Vendetta. Please be aware there will be spoilers, uh, for both the comic and the film. Um, however, both are decades old at this point uh, the comic is uh 1988 it finished and the film like i said 2006 which is 15 years ago so if you haven't seen either of those by now then i will take it that uh, you know you have no plans to anytime soon so you wouldn't mind being spoiled uh, but it's kind of hard to discuss everything that happens within them and everything that uh Everything the film does in adapting the comic um, Without discussing the plot elements So, please join me V for Vendetta began publication in 1981 In Warrior Magazine in the UK It was written by Alan Moore And drawn by David Lloyd Both of whom already had an established career In UK comic books it was very clearly a take on the current political situation um, of the UK at the time. Um, the UK at the time was embroiled in, quite heavily in the Cold War. Um, there was talk of missiles, nuclear missiles owned by the US being used on British, being stored on British soil um, by the con- then current Conservative government um, led by Margaret Thatcher. And that was a very hot button issue. It was one of the, the things that the Labour government were trying to, uh, you know, the Labour opposition were trying to have removed. Um, during their campaign for election um, for 1982. Now, Moore and Lloyd created a world in which the Labour opposition won the election in 1982, removed the American missiles, and then not long afterwards, the Cold War got hot. Um, Russia and well, the Soviet Union, and America are destroyed, but Britain is spared the ensuing nuclear holocaust. Um, Moore has said, obviously, you know, some of these things. You know, the, the idea of Britain surviving while a nuclear ho- holocaust consumes the rest of the planet is uh, now known to be impossible. But um, it was a common theme that there would be survivors of nuclear war in the 80s. The 80s was kind of the last gasp of the Cold War, um, where everyone thought it might get hot again for a while, um, shortly before the end finally came. Um, It concluded in 1988. By the time it concluded in 1988, Alan Moore pointed out um, in an introduction for a collected version in 1989... That um, Thatcher's government had continued in power and he was already starting to see things that he had seen in the fascist government in V for Vendetta. Um, for example, the Section 28 measures, um, which in the wake of the AIDS crisis prevented schools from addressing anything about homosexuality in school. A, a a kid could go up to a teacher and say, you know, miss, I think I'm gay. What do I do? And a teacher would not be allowed to offer any advice. Um, that was a law that wasn't repealed until um, the late 90s, I believe. That's a very horrible law. Um, and, you know... It was something that came off the back of the AIDS crisis. Um, There was also increased surveillance. Um, You know, we started to see video cameras and CCTV a lot more, especially in big city centres like London, Um, partially because of the increased risk of terrorism from uh, Northern Ireland, but just in general, a, a greater police state. Um, so Moore found certain bits very prescient. The actual story of Vendetta is set in a world, like I said, um, Britain has been spared nuclear holocaust and has seen the rise of the Norse Fire Party. Um, The Norse Fire Party is essentially a fascist government uh and a very out and out fascist they you know adam susan their leader in the book does ex- does outright declare himself at one point that he believes in fascism um the people are under surveillance there are quarantine zones there is rationing um you know the very first page of the the novel shows all this um while a propaganda statement known as the voice of London plays on the giant speakers throughout the city. Um, Not the voice of London, sorry, that's the film, the voice of fate. Um, So yeah, when we find out as the book goes on that the, uh, the government have removed um, gays, blacks, immigrants, um, religious minorities, so Jews, Muslims, um, all of those sort of people, anything that doesn't represent a white homogenized UK, have been removed and killed. We even get on the very second page something that which stuck out to me when rereading it for this uh This episode, Um, the quote, make Britain great again, um, which, considering Boris Johnson's current build back better and, um, you know, the make America great again under Trump, um, I find especially glaring. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the story begins with... The story begins with a young girl, Evie Hammond. She's 16 years old in the comic book, um, going out and basically acting as a prostitute. She is attempting to solicit a customer. It's her first time doing so. Um, I don't that she's very desperate. However, she tries to solicit a fingerman. Fingermen are essentially the Norse fire government's secret police service, and she has to be saved by V. V is a uh, a character wearing a elaborate Guy Fawkes costume and mask, um, and he takes Evie away after killing several of the Fingermen, and shows her that he destroys Parliament as he destroys Parliament. Um, he's set bombs and fireworks underneath Parliament, um, it's around Westminster where he saves her, um, so it's sort of implied that he stumbled on her in distress just as he was leaving Parliament. Um, she asks who he is and he calls himself the villain, the black sheep of the family, as he says. Um... He takes Evie to his shadow gallery, um, which is composed of a lot of art and music that he has copies of that the government has outlawed. Um, we see things in there such as Shakespeare, Billy Holiday music, uh, the Marx Brothers, etc. Uh, lots of Renaissance paintings as well. The government of the piece is um, led by Adam Susan as the head Um then there is the investigative uh, branches, the bits that are responsible for surveillance. There's the eye, led by Conrad Hayer, and the EAR, which is like audio surveillance, um, led by a person called Bunny Etheridge. Whether Bunny is a nickname or not, I'm not entirely sure, uh, but it's the only first name he's given within the story itself. Um, there's the finger, um, which is the... Security, the secret police, like I said, and the mouth, um, which is the BTN, the British television network that's um, led by Roger Dascom and is responsible for the voice of fate, which is read by Lewis Prothero and the nose, who are essentially the police force, the investigators. Um, The main character there is Eric Finch and his partner, Dominic Stone. Um, who will be coming back to quite a lot. Um, there's also a supercomputer known as Fate, um, which Susan is sort of keyed into, um, which allows for the operating of the government and handles and collates all of the information that they they take from their surveillance. Um, Finch essentially starts p- pursuing the... Um, after the bombing of Parliament, but more definitely after V strikes again uh, the next day and abducts uh, Louis Prothero, the voice of fate. Um, Finch himself is not a party man. He works for them due to his skill, but he doesn't necessarily believe in what they stand for. So he's he's not a fascist, um, but he is because he works for them. Um it's sort of an attempt on the good Nazi idea, um, yeah. I'm not sure how I feel about that too much. I mean, the you know, it's it's true there have been people who have worked for um, for governments like the Nazi Party in um, uh, Nazi Germany, who weren't necessarily you know party men, um, but were simply part of part of the government but they were still aiding and abetting nazis it's the old idea of the the one bad apple spoils the bunch you can't have a good apple in a bad bunch um that's my view on it um, anyway um so yeah we find out that obviously there was the nuclear conflict in the 80s britain wasn't bombed yet it still suffered uh crop and climate damage and in the aftermath, which was a bit chaotic, Norse Fire came to power, um, born of like fascist ideals um, and backed by corporate money. Um, they took the the black population, the Pakistani population, uh, the radicals, the gays, the socialists, and others, and they were all taken away and placed in resettlement camps. And we learn this through Evie as she explains about her family. Um, her, her mother died in the aftermath due to uh, the famine, and her father who used to work for I think he'd he'd once written some socialist pieces for a for a paper. Um he was taken away as a radical uh to one of these camps. Um the main camp that we uh focus on though is Larkhill. Larkhill uh, once housed V and we find this out as he tortures Louis Prothero. Um he takes Prothero through Rothero, uh collects dolls, uh, and so V has all of his dolls and sets them up in a um, a recreation of Lark Hill while dressed as a vaudevillian character. In um, this scene, he's wearing a Punch and Judy mask rather than his usual Guy Fawkes mask. I'm not sure for any of my American listeners if um, Punch and Judy is really a thing over there, but it's a, a sort of um, bizarre and. Ent- entertainment usually found on seasides in Britain um with two puppet characters uh, Mr. Punch and Judy and yeah it's a bizarre one um now in doing this uh, V destroys a lot of the dolls which drives Prothero mad and then returns him uh to the government um yeah um so prothero is now is now mad and can't really speak um and so he has to be replaced as the voice of fate um and of course it's pointed out in the captions that like People can tell the voice is different, but they don't quite know why. And it just unnerves everyone who listens. Um, Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Um, Basically, Prothero, the reason why V targeted Prothero is Prothero was the commander of the Larkhill resettlement camp. Um, So essentially like the camp camp commandant he would be the person responsible and prothero reveals that he knows who v is v was kept in room five um we learn but we don't know much else about him at this point um a few months later v destroys the old bailey um the old bailey is the where the supreme court of london of the uk is um and he has a conversation with justice on the roof. There's a statue of justice on the roof of the old Bailey. And he has a a conversation where he's sort of playing both roles. And, um, he praises, uh, his mistress, anarchy. Um, so again, the, the out and out statement that V is an anarchist. He believes in anarchy, um, and that he used to believe in justice until justice cheated on him with the vile Susan. Um, and this is obviously contrasted against the previous scene uh, within that same serial of um, Susan and the Fate Supercomputer, uh, where we find out that Susan has never really had any romantic bonds with any woman, but is essentially in love with the Fate Supercomputer. like He sees it as a, a perfect partner for him. Um, and he states he, he believes in fascism. Uh, you know, unwaveringly, fascism is something he is he is dedicated towards, and you know, it's a very good chapter of the story where um, the two lay out their their stances. Um, Evie, um, throughout this time, still wants to help V. Um, you know, seeing that she she's sort of. Um, grateful to him for saving her life Um, this is still taking place only over a few weeks I think it's all still before Christmas it's still like late November Um, so uh, Evie helps V with a plot Um, V dresses her up as a, a young girl and sends her to meet with bishop uh, lilliman um bishop lilliman he's the the head of westminster abbey uh in this under the Norse fire party um so essentially one of the most important religious figures within the uk uh within britain um and yeah it's implied that he sees young ladies um well say young ladies girls he rapes young girls essentially um and there's a an agency responsible for catering to his whims like that um which obviously makes him a very despicable character um in fact his, his attendant even says that um uh, there was a, uh, a disruption with the agency and the girl they've sent is a bit older than usual um and like i said you know evie is 16 so yeah, he's a pervert. <laughs> um, v comes in through a window that Evie got told to leave open. Um, kills Lilliman, um, while being he kills Lilliman while quoting Charles Manson. He quotes the he uses the quote "I am the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work." Um, plays Beethoven's fifth um, over the speakers to disrupt the the ear from listening in Um, but the ear do manage to hear V's voice um, which leads them to to come in and um, try to save uh, Lilliman however they're unsuccessful and yeah he kills the bishop by making him eat a poison communion wafer um, Beethoven's Fifth is, is notable because the the main refrain at the opening is V in Morse code um, and was also used during World War Two on uh, British radio broadcasts, uh, British military radio broadcasts to indicate V for victory, um, which was a, a fun little fact I read. Um, EVs originally horrified... Um, off the back of this, uh, V involving her to kill someone. Um, so, yeah, she does kind of get over it, but it does take her a while. Um, we also start to get some elaboration of the supporting characters in the Nor- within the Norse fire party, um, specifically Derek Almond and his wife Rosemary. Um we see them attend a mass hosted by Lilliman just before he's killed. Um, and there's some definite tensions between them. Like, they're... They, they, their marriage has issues. And that's very, very clear. Um, and that becomes more important going forward uh finch and dominic stone uh learn about lark hill uh from a clue that they managed to get from the, the mad prothero he says room 5 um and they investigate and learn that v has killed or dealt with every worker everyone who ever worked at lark hill within the last 4 years um 4 years ago was when lark hill closed um, they don't really know exactly what happened at Lark Hill, but they know that everyone there has been killed, except for Delia Surridge, who is their forensic pathologist, uh, who Finch was recently with. Um, they rush to go find her and call Almond to come as well, um, but V is already with her um, at this point. And V actually treats her a lot, more kindly than he has anyone else at this point. Um, You know, with Prothero, he's very cruel. Um, With Lilliman, he's again, cruel but very calculating. With Delia, he's very, very gentle. Um, He's already killed her. He's injected her with a poison that will kill her. And he did it while she was asleep. Um, And it's yeah it's it's interesting she seems to show remorse as well she shows that she was almost aware that v was would come for her one day um because of what happened at lark hill and she recognizes him as as, as again the man in room 5 and yeah it's It's some quite tender moments between the two of them, actually. Um, So, yeah, she she dies. Um, Almond arrives just before Finch, um, but he was in the middle of cleaning his gun, and though as as such he hasn't actually loaded it before he arrived, so he tries goes to kill V, but V kills him instead. Um, And... So, Finch arrives with Almond dead, Delia dead, and Delia's diary has been left. He takes it, reads it, and um, discusses it with Susan. Um, and we find out that V was a test subject for a drug called Batch 5, um, which was a, a hormone hormonal drug uh, administered at Lark Hill. On several test subjects by Delia um and he was the long, the person who survived its effects for the longest um but it did render him i believe Delia calls him schizophrenic um and you know very charming but also unsettling um but he doesn't seem to suffer the the adverse effects of the the other five the other four main victims who survived the initial testing batch. Um, He got into Prothero's good graces as a gardener um, and ordered supplies with Delia's encouragement. Um, But what he actually had done was developed mustard gas and napalm um, using these industrial-grade... Uh, fertilisers and things, and the the quantities he was ordering, um, which he used to destroy the cell block and escape. Um, And Finch acknowledges that the diary was probably left for them, but the pages are, there's certain pages missing. Um, And they realise that V has essentially killed everyone who could ever possibly identify him. And that ends the first act of the story. (laughs) It's like there's 11 chapters per act. Um, And they all range from sort of 8 to 12 pages long. And yeah, that's the end of Act 1. As we learn that V has essentially eradicated everyone who could identify him. Prothero, uh, Lilliman was at Lark Hill, um, as well as Delia. She was the last one. And they wonder, you know, what could happen next? What what could they expect from V next? Act 2 of V for Vendetta is called This Vicious Cabaret. And it actually begins with a musical chapter complete with sheet music and fourth wall breaks. Um, sort of summarising the story up to this point and where the major characters are. Um, it touches on... V, Evie, Finch, Susan, Rosemary Almond, um, and sort of says, you know, where they are and what's brought them to this point of the story. Um, It's the mute. I have actually heard this vicious cabaret turned into a song um, by someone I believe. It's credited as David J. on Spotify. Um, but yes, it's on Spotify and on YouTube. Um, and it's it's good. It's it's an interesting enough song. Um, I do think it works better as a song than it does on the page. Um, but yeah, there's something quite jovial about the lyrics, despite their the somewhat horrifying subject matter. Yeah. Um, It starts almost in the aftermath of the previous um, chapter of the book. Um, Rosemary Almond buries Derek and finds herself um, completely alone. Meanwhile, um, Evie asks V if he's her father, which causes V to abandon her in the streets of London. Like, he blindfolds her and takes her up and then just leaves her there. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, Rosemary ends up dating Dascombe to try and survive in her desperation, because Dascombe shows an interest in her. She reveals that she she loved Almond, but also hated him. And now he's kind of left... She's kind of left with nothing. The government want, like, nothing to do with her. They're not going to financially support her. So it's like, yeah, she has to go with Dascom to find to find her new way in the world, I suppose. Um, which, yeah, is a bit bleak and a bit horrible, but it is what it is. Uh, four months later, however, V enters the TV headquarters at Jordan Tower, armed with a suicide vest, and takes over the mouth. Um, he broadcasts on all channels in his own video, and he basically produces a statement that says that he's it's almost like a work related interview he says we're very we're very displeased with your performance of late um and he he's very aggressive towards the people and says he will give them 2 years to change their ways um and uh to sort of turn their back on the government and everything else that's wrong um, in the UK. Uh, soldiers attack the station and seem to shoot V dead, but it actually turns out to be Dascombe. Um, and V's statement was actually all like pre recorded. He literally just broke in, played the tape, um, and then set up Dascom in like a fake mask and cloak um, and escaped. Um Peter Creedy um has taken over the finger um and makes a remark towards Finch about um, Delia and about V, which prompts Finch Finch to punch him while standing over Dascombe's body investigating, um, which leads Susan to send him on a forced vacation to Norfolk, where he starts to like question his view on the party and his view on V. Um, Rose, um, left without uh, Dascom now, as well as without Derek, is poor, and she eventually starts to work in a CD club um, called the Kit Kat Keller. Uh, Kitty Kat Keller, I believe it is. It's like a burlesque vaudeville-style club. Um, we see... Evie there as well, she's now living with Gordon Dietrich, who is a smuggler, uh, who sort of took her in when he found her raiding his bins, uh, and they witness a man, um, trying to appeal to Creedy in the club, who gets beaten by Fingerman after decrying the government, um, when she leaves the club with Gordon, we see that V is still watching her from afar, um, Gordon and Evie eventually grow intimate, um which is a bit icky, but you know, because Gordon is clearly a hell of a lot older than she is. Um, you know, he's balding with a mustache. Um and Evie at this point is seventeen, barely. Um Yeah, it's it, it's implied that Evie has quite severe um father issues, um issues with the father figures in her life. Um not just her own father, but obviously Gordon and V as well. Um however, a few months later he ends up killed by a gangster, a Scottish gangster, um named Ali Harper. Um who he encountered in the Kitty Cat Keller uh in the previous segment. Um Evie takes Gordon's gun and heads to the club to go and kill Harper, um, but gets stopped outside and abducted. Um, She has a nightmare of uh, V, Gordon and her father in a whole chapter before she awakens in a government prison cell. Like She looks through the bars and she sees their strength through purity, purity through faith um posters that we've seen all around London outside her cell um she gets shown footage from Westminster last year um showing her and V together um she has her head shaved and then finds um a letter in her cell um that pokes through a a small crack in the wall um and the letter is written on toilet paper, and it's by Valerie. Um, the letter is sort of explained in a chapter later on, but it's like Evie. We see her being repeatedly tortured. They they know that Creedy. Um, like I said, they tell her that they found her outside the Kitty Cat Keller, a club which is fre- frequented by Creedy. So, even though she went there to kill Harper. They've had they're pinning her for attempted murder of uh Peter Creedy. Um, so they want to confess her to a, attempting to kill him and they they keep torturing her. She we see her be um waterboarded, we see her be beaten, um, some other quite horrible things. Um, but all she does is continue to read Valerie's letter. Um, the letter from Valerie. Valerie is a lesbian woman um who grew up and found love before the war um watched uh, she made a film called The Salt Flats um where she met her her partner Ruth um and the the letter basically tells her life story and you know her her struggling to, you know, her embracing her homosexuality and finding Ruth. And then watching as the war happened and Norse fire came to power in Britain. Um, Ruth getting captured while she was out shopping. Um, being tortured and giving up uh, Valerie's name. Valerie herself then being captured and taken away. And... It's to me, it's one of the best sequences in the book. Um, by far. Valerie's letter is oh, it's heartrending, and it's beautifully written. Um of oh, this young woman just knowing that she's going to die, but being so determined not to be forgotten, and through the final part. Of the, the letter. She says she's she's not willing to give up her freedom. She describes her integrity. As the very last inch of herself. And she says that, that in that last inch. We are free. And she says that this place will destroy. Every last inch of her. Except that one. And I just find the message in that so powerful. Um, And that resonates with Evie. At the end of that chapter, Evie even says, I know every inch of this cell. This cell knows every inch of me except one. And, yeah, it's my favourite chapter of the book is the scene where we get... The chapter where we get Valerie's letter. Um explain to us and we learn exactly what it is um and in fact Evie's words about it it says um an inch it's small and it's fragile and it's the only thing in the world that's worth having we must never lose it or sell it or give it away we must never let them take it from us and yeah it's incredibly powerful so Reading Valerie's letter, um, over the the past weeks of her torture has enabled Evie to remain steadfast. And she says that she refuses to sign the confession. She is ready to die. And she finds the cell door open. Um, she leaves, she wanders down the corridor and finds V in the shadow gallery. Um... Which leads to an argument between them. Um, but he explains that she she needs to hold on to the feeling that she had, um, where she was ready to die, where she embraced death, um, and and gained the the strength and the resolve from it. And he takes her to the roof, and she's you know bathed in the rain, um, and. You know, with her resolve hardened, has this uh, apotheosis. Um, you know, this this rebirth, um, and just remains steadfast. She is now dedicated to to V's cause because it has now become her own cause as well. Um, and yeah, it's it's brilliant. Time marches on, um... It's now been about six months since V killed Daskam. Um, Finch is still investigating and trying to work out who V is. But he's starting to embrace more... Uh, more different ways of thinking. Um, we see him reading, um, Kostler's Roots of Coincidence. And he starts trying to explore the coincidences that are at play within the story. Um... V reveals to Evie that Valerie was actually real and that Valerie's letter was actually given to him at Larkhill and her words are what transformed him into the man he is. And then he shows Valerie's picture and poster from the Salt Flats film because he has it within his shadow gallery. Um, and we turns out we'd actually seen her earlier in the story um we'd seen V looking at her and not realized who that was um Evie tells v not to kill harper he says he could he could kill harper for her because that's what she was after um and v decides that yeah it's it's time for the finale that's everything's been building up to it and i think he says he's finally ready for it And thus ends Act 2. Act 3 is called The Land of Do-As-You-Please. The Land of Do-As-You-Please comes from um, the story of the Faraway Tree, um, which is actually read by uh, by V to Evie earlier on in the story, um, back in Act 1. Now... It starts with V destroying Jordan Tower and the old post office tower to the tune of Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture, um, which cripples the eye and the ear, uh, kills Etheridge, um, and basically he announces to London that they have three days, I think he says, um surveillance-free. Um they're not going to be surveyed by the Norse Fire government. By this point in the story is November 5th, 1998. It is exactly a year since um, he destroyed the Houses of Parliament. And in fact, in one of the first um, views of this, which I find incredibly charming, is a, a young girl looking up at the, the cameras and the speakers and yelling out, bollocks and then sort of flinching waiting for something to happen and then when seeing nothing does you know gleefully chanting bollocks and spray painting things and you know saying bollocks on mr susan bollocks on my teacher um so yeah that's that's brilliant she ends up spraying the v symbol um on the walls she sprays bollocks on the floor um yeah, it's very, very fun. Um, Finch is missing. Um, at this point, he's he's disappeared. He has some drugs with him that he signed a release order for, but the r- original release order has been destroyed. So Stone is desperately trying to find out what it is he's taken. Um, at the end of Act 2, the Fate supercomputer briefly flashed up I Love You on all of its screens to Susan, which startled him. Um, and now Susan is in a state where he is like mesmerized by the computer, and and desperately waiting some feedback from it. Um, so when he's told about what happened to the ear and the eye, he's somewhat absent. Um, and yeah, it makes Creedy sort of realize that maybe Susan isn't as a, as capable of a leader anymore. Uh, Rosemary manages to buy a gun from uh, Ali Harper um, Chaos begins to reign in London, there's rioting and looting um, which leads the Fingermen to eventually kill a woman um, shooting her dead after she's been rioting which then prompts even more responses of rioting and um, and uh, pushback from the people um, V tells Evie that a period of anarchy will eventually lead to a true order, a voluntary order. But at the moment what is not an- what is happening on the street is not anarchy but chaos as people do what thou wilt. Um Creedy goes and recruits Harper and men like him to try and restore order. Um sort of you know heavies and gangsters um to sort of beef up the numbers of the fingermen and help sort of stop the violence um, Helen Hayer, who is wife of Conrad Heyer at the Eye, um, and we've briefly seen in some previous chapters, um, she seems very disparaging to her husband, um, turns out she's manipulating him, she's very, he's very much subservient to her, she's like the power in their relationship, and he's manipul- she's manipulating him because she wants him to take over instead of Creedy when Susan eventually falls. Um, you know, they, they can all tell that Susan's days are numbered. Um and Helen wants Conrad to come out on top rather than Creedy. Um V reveals to Eevee that he has his own version of the fake computer, which is what he's been using to get all of his information. Um, so it therefore implies as well that he was the one that flashed the I love you to Susan, purely to kind of um, to disrupt him. Um, Creedy tries to get Harper on his side, um, you know, ready for like, you know, if I, if I have to take over, you're going to help me out, yeah? Um but Helen actually gets Harper to report to her by offering to pay him even more money. Um and obviously Harper being a complete scoundrel is tries to take money off of both of them. Um V distributes uh poems through the people rioting, which then get found and analysed by Creedy and Dominic, um, which leads Dominic to realise that V has access to fate. Um which, obviously, creates uh, an interesting... <sighs> Finch goes to Hill And, while he's there, takes LSD. Uh, in an attempt to try and get inside V's head. And he has his own version of what we've seen previously with V and Eevee. With their own sort of transformations and rebirth. He has his own one. Um sort of through this drug trip and realises sort of, you know, what, you know, he realises that what the party did was wrong, that he misses, um, you know, the blacks and the gays and the other minorities that have been eradicated. Uh, You know, he misses what they added to the culture and he sort of gets lost in the trip for a moment, sort of like, well, who how do I stop this? Who's, who's doing this? Who's keeping me here? And then he realizes it's all him. And he realizes that he can be free because he wants to be free. Um, it's very interesting. All three characters have these kind of, uh, big, important, dramatic moments. Um, and throughout all three of them, they're, they're prisoners. Um, you know, in, 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 Finch's drug trip, he sees himself in a prison uniform as one of the people at Larkhill uh, in a prison jumpsuit um, being led away by Prothero and Lilliman to, to join the ranks of the test subjects and things like that. Uh, it's Yeah, it, there's a very strong narrative thread connecting them uh, and you know <sighs> distinct similarities in how they're their rebirths are presented. I mean, we see V's through, um, Delia's diary by a flashback. And then we see Evie's and Finch's in real time. It's very, very good. Uh, V shows Evie, the final part of the plan. He has a train loaded with, uh, bombs and explosives, um, underneath the shadow gallery. Um, but she gets very confused by his sort of enigmatic behavior. um, Because what she actually said to him was, show me what your will is. And he leads her around the shadow gallery and talks in riddles around her. Um, So yeah, she's a bit more confused at the minute, but it does come to her later on. Um, Helen sleeps with Harper, knowing that it will be recorded by the eye. Because there are video cameras in every person's bedroom. So she knows that it'll be recorded. Um, She says this is why her and Conrad haven't had um, a relationship, like a physical relationship for years. Um, Creedy organises a parade to try and calm the people and wants to bring Susan out into the parade. Um, And Susan does come out into the parade, but while there is shot by Rosemary. Um, Rosemary Almond, who... The gun, which she originally said was for protection, it was kind of implied that maybe she was going to use it on herself. Note, she uses it on Susan. Um, Susan doesn't even recognize her. You know, I think one of the party, one of the party guards, one of the fingermen, like lets her through the lines to, to meet with Susan, but Susan has no idea who she is. Um, and Susan's own delusions are kind of revealed, where he says that he he sort of sees as no one else, um, being real, in life. Like it's just him, he's the only person that he knows is real. Which I believe is a philosophical approach and is possibly also a mental illness. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting take. Rosemary is then obviously promptly arrested and tortured by Creedy and his men. Um, Finch arrives back into London and finds the train under Victoria tube station. And has a confrontation with V there where he shoots him. Um, Vince returns to the party leadership, who are all reeling after Susan's death. Um, and, you know, he he tells them that V's dead. But then while he's there and while he's talking to Dominic, he reveals that V could have killed him very, very easily. Like, he didn't realise that V was behind him until V announced himself. And even then, it took him a while to actually shoot V. So, yeah, that causes Finch to realise that V must have another plan. So he doesn't tell Dominic about Victoria Station. Um, Harper then kills Creedy um, as part of his pre-arrangement with Helen. Um, Finch leaves Dominic and the party saying everything is different for him now and he just walks off. Um, a tape that V sent to Hare of um, Helen and Harper leads Conrad Hare to kill Harper when he arrives. Um, but he ends up getting wounded himself and Helen leaves him to die, like angry at his failure. Like he's upset all of her plans. She had it all worked out and he's ruined it. Um, so yeah, with V dead, Evie assumes his guise. Um, making a final speech for the waiting people, telling them all to choose what comes next, whether they want lives on their own or return to chains. Um, it should be said that all the people were expecting V to come out and talk at midnight. Um, you know, people were out in the streets waiting. Um, but V's actual words incite a riot against the Norse fire and, um, And Evie pulls Dominic, who gets wounded, um, in the, in the riot away from it, um, you know, because Dominic was there checking on the, on the guards and pointing out that, yeah, they haven't had a word from Creedy, or, you know, they don't know what's going on, um, Evie sends V on the train as like a Viking funeral to destroy 10 Downing Street um, and then welcomes Dominic to the Shadow Gallery. Um, And then the final pages see Finch leaving London and he walks into a group who are harassing uh, Helen. And Helen asks him for help, um, but she gets his name wrong. She calls him Edward Finch. And without even saying a word, Finch just kind of pushes her away. And then walks and leaves London forever. It's a very, very interesting story, um, the comic. It has a lot happen, and it has a lot happen. Um, Sometimes some things happen very quickly, and then other things take a while. Um, you know, all of Act 3 is set over the space of three, four days. But, for example, Act 2 is set over the space of whew, about ten months, I think it says. You know, if you've got four months until he kills Dascom and then six months after that. Um, without very much explanation of what's been happening in all the the intermediate time. It's it's a very, very good story. Um, and it doesn't present as hopeful of an ending as you'd expect. I mean, the government is toppled in a way, but there's no clear direction as to what's going to happen next. You know, all of the party leadership has been killed or disposed. Um but we don't know what's going to happen next, where the story is going to go at all. Um, V is dead, but Evie has now taken on his guise as the new V and has Dominic as well, clearly suggesting that maybe she's going to groom him to be her successor in the same way that she was groomed by V to be his successor. Um, I do think it's a good story, though. It's a very, very, very good book. Um, I don't necessarily agree with all the political takes in it regarding um, anarchy and anarchism. Um, You know, my politics are not quite to that level. I do not think that V is an especially great character. He's not really an especially good hero. He comes across downright cruel sometimes um, to Evie, like just abandoning her on the streets of London. Um, You know, this is a 16-year-old girl with nothing, and she's also wanted by the party. So, yeah. Although I don't think they ever necessarily have her name in the, the comic. I know they do in the film. and you know his his torture of her during the um the prison scene in the book is very very graphic um you know at one point he subjects her to a an, ex- an examination shall we say um a genital examination um which she describes as being um, a violation so yeah, there's there's definite issues with it. I I do I do think it is a good story, and I do think that it tells a story worth telling. It's got some very complex characters, some very complex ideas. Um, Alan Moore said originally they were writing it with a lot of ideas, and not all of them stuck. So apparently the early issues should feel a bit more disjointed. Personally, I don't think the early issues do feel that disjointed. To me, the disjointed part happens in the middle. Um, until Evie ends up in the prison, it's very disjointed and V isn't present for much of it. There's the, there's the scenes at Jordan Tower, but um, beyond that, there's not much. Um, v <coughs> excuse me V gets a lot of quite complex dialogue um, he's got almost a sort of disdain for the people in allowing the Norse fire government to exist I don't think it's bad, though. I don't think he's a bad character by any means. He's definitely a good lead. I just don't think he's necessarily as heroic as maybe the comic wants to present him as. He definitely offers an alternative to the fascism, but presented by Norsefire, but his alternative is also not never explicitly said. You know... Um, You know, he wants anarchy and he believes that, um, you know, from anarchy uh, a voluntary order will will arise and exist. But never, never really explains how he expects that to happen or seems to want to have any... ...part to play in bringing that about. He wants to just sort of... ...he wants to just sort of... ...let that happen. Which... ...I suppose goes along with... ...a sense of anarchy. He doesn't want to be a leader. Um, But... (sighs) ...he seems to want to expect the people... ...to follow his ideals... Without ever stating those ideals. Outright. Um, We also don't see what happens in the aftermath. I mean. You know. V in his speech at Jordan Tower. Gives them two years. But then. You know. A little over. Six months later. He. He. The story comes to a conclusion. So. We don't know what happens in the, the next eighteen months, you know. But I suppose that's part of the, you know, the story of V has been told. It's it will be another story afterwards, and obviously one that the the writers had no desire to tell. It is good though. I don't necessarily think it's the best Alan Moore story. Um, my own personal favourite is still Watchmen. Um, v for Vendetta does come quite high on the list though for me now for the film of V for Vendetta I'm going to give um, more of a plot rundown first and then I'm going to explain some of the differences um, between them we might comment on some things as we're going but I'm going to comment on most of the differences in an adaptation later on um, the film starts with a very deliberate Guy Fawkes flashback Um And it compares ideas to the men behind those ideas. And how an idea is stronger and more long-lasting than a man. Um, And and that's narrated by Evie. Um, That is something that was brought up in the comic. um, In a line that will be echoed later on in the film. Um, It was brought up in Act 3. Now in the the film starts in a relatively similar way we see the the voice of fate but that's now a tv show called the voice of london um it judges america which has fallen um the focus is on strength through unity unity through faith rather than purity um evie is older and she's not uh, a prostitute in this version um Instead, she gets captured by the finger for being uh, by the fingerman for being outside after curfew. Um, And the fingerman who capture her are actually very, very similar to the sort of men that Harper and his ilk um, were at the end of the the book. Um, V saves her. He's much stronger. Um, In fact, later in the film, it's explicitly confirmed that he now has powers. Uh, a sort of kinesthesia it's described as. As uh, enhanced kinesthesia, I should say. Um, as a result of what happened at Hill, um And the Batch 5, which was uh, now 20 years ago, rather than the 4 it is in the comic. Um, he's also more explicitly wounded um, as a result of what happened in Lark Hill. Um We find out later on when in the flashback for Delia's diary that he is burnt. Um, so the fire, which he used to free himself, actually burnt him. Uh, he has no eyes, for example. He, and he's burnt head to toe. Um, don't think any of that is ever, you know, he's never implied to have been burnt. He's never implied as anything more than a man in the comic. Um, um... He introduces himself with a very uh, a, a V-laden speech. He says words beginning with V, something like I think it's 49 different words beginning with V in that one speech. Um, a lot of them are words from the titles of the original um, comic run, the the chapter titles. I don't know how much of that is deliberate and how much of it is just that there are certain only certain words that begin with V. uh <laughs> But when certain more obscure ones like uh, Vicissitude reappear, you have to wonder if it's somewhat deliberate. Um, if it is, if it was deliberate, it's a good nod. If it's accidental, it's um, a very interesting coincidence. Um, v is much kinder to Eevee in this version and he's much more charming. Um, he's got kind of like a... An Errol Flynn-style persona. uh, You know, the dashing rogue. Um, He then proceeds to... I think he takes V to the Shadow Gallery, but lets her... No. He doesn't take her to the Shadow Gallery yet. Um, He... Sort of lets V... lets Evie go on her way home after she watches him destroy the old Bailey. Um... Um, Which he does by conducting and playing the Tchaikovsky 1812 Overture again. um, Which becomes sort of his signature music piece in this. Um, He lets Evie go. We see the reactions um, from the government. Um, Creedy is automatically the member in charge of the finger. Um, There is no Derek Almond in this version. Possibly to streamline... Uh, the character dynamics and make Creedy more of a villain um, the leader of the government is now called Adam Sutler, he's played by John Hurt and he plays him excellently, I should say Nat- Natalie Portman plays Evie and Hugo Weaving uh, portrays V um, and he does a, a remarkable job He's it, it's quite a tricky thing to play V because we never see him unmasked except for, well there is one scene in the film where we see him without his mask Um, but you never see his eyes and obviously acting without eyes is, is quite hard. Um, now we find out that Evie works in television. She works, um, at the mouth, um, and the members of the government work out who she is. And they start trying to investigate her. I think Finch investigates her. More sort of straight away. Um, so the High Chancellor. Uh, Sutler sends him after her. Um, the next day. We see her going to work. Um, while Finch raids her house. With Dominic. Um, they then head to her workplace. Jordan Tower. Um, while... She she's sort of a, a gopher in the studio. She's she's not on TV. She meets with uh, Gordon Dietrich, who's played by Stephen Fry. Um, Dietrich is a much different character in this um, to the Gordon of the comic book. He's not a smuggler. He's he instead works in TV. Um, we find out that the the voice of fate, the the Prothero, um, the voice of London, isn't the only thing presented on BTN, but BTN is the state television. Um so it does limit what can be what is allowed and what can be shown. Um Evie ferries masks to the studio floor um in packages. She only sees that they're Guy Fawkes masks when they're un- unveiled by Dascom and one of his uh, one of his men. Um and that's where she proceeds to hide because V has arrived at the studio um with his bomb vest. And he goes on TV, and he he makes a statement, but his statement is very, very different um to the one in the comic. he's a lot less harsh towards the people um, and his his focus is less about anarchy and more about freedom um you know and and we even focus on the people watching his broadcast as well we see a lot of um focus on the different people there's uh, shots of uh, an old people's home uh, a pub um a family house um where the the young girl with the glasses from the comic appears um we even see other things as well in this scene uh, there's even um the fictional like pulp adventure show Storm Saxon which appeared in the background of, like, one chapter of the comics. Um, we actually see it as a TV show in this world, um, which was a nice nice little touch and illusion that I, I quite liked. Yeah, V in his statement um, takes credit for the destruction of the old Bailey and sets out his time frame and says that in one year he is going to destroy Parliament. Um you know, he lays that out from the beginning um, and he's going to topple the government. Um, he, As he's fleeing, he gets cornered by Dominic, who's been separated from Finch, um, and Evie saves him from Dominic by spraying Dominic with pepper spray, um, but is also knocked out by Dominic in doing so. Um, v takes her away and takes her to the shadow gallery we also then get um some more exploration of her history we find out that her parents were both radicals in this and thus were both arrested Uh, and she had an elder brother who died of a virus known as the saint mary's virus um, which becomes an ongoing plot thread in the uh in the film V does leave a bomb at Jordan Tower, but it doesn't go off. Dascom is able to defuse it just before it explodes. Um I should point out, with the exception of Finch and Dominic, most of the uh the villains in this film are much more vile. Um they're not as they're not as well rounded and developed as the characters in the comic book. Um they're much more out and out despicable. There's also no mention of the fake computer. Um Suttler is only ever seen through a video screen for the majority of the movie. Um, So he could be, you know, we do see him speak to his staff in the comic books through the video screens on the Fate computer. Um, So he could potentially be in a room with it, but the fate is never explicitly shown. Um, v then proceeds to hunt and kill Prothero. He kills him in his bathroom. Um, there's there's none of the uh, explicit torture, but he does refer to him as Commander Prothero, so they do still have that same connection. Um, but it's a much more straightforward killing. Um, Finch, in investigating Prothero's murder, finds the link to Larkhill rather than Dominic. Um, Evie... Um, makes a play of wanting to help V, um, which is what leads her to the scene with Lilliman. Um, but in during the scene with Lilliman, she tries to confess that she's been roped into helping V and she's an unwilling participant. Um, however, that doesn't seem to get her anywhere as all that does is en- entice Lilliman more as he sort of sees it as like a a game. Um, you know, always going to free the young, the young maiden who's been captured. Um, um, so yeah, when V comes in, uh, Lilliman reacts like, oh, it's true. And she apologizes to V and runs. Uh, she runs to Dietrich. It turns out the night that she was breaking curfew, she was going to see Dietrich. Um, she was going for like a date at his house. Um, Dietrich, however, has uh, banned materials in his house and is secretly gay. He trusts Evie with this fact. He says that um, the whole reason he was inviting her over is because to sort of keep up appearances of a man in the closet. He's expected to entertain young women, so, you know, he does. Um, Yeah, it's... um... An interesting thing, apparently, is something that Stephen Fry wanted to add to develop Dietrich more as a character. Um, Finch tries to investigate the Lark Hill connection, um, um, but is sort of stonewalled by the military, um, the, the officer sort of in charge, and uh, Creedy gives him a, a not so subtle warning saying, You're being watched um, for trying to investigate Lark Hill. Um, but Finch is convinced that there's um a link between lark hill and evie knowing knowing what he knows about evie and that her brother died of saint mary's which he doesn't see as a coincidence um most of the the plot then carries on in the same way we get the the scene with um, delia um however in this delia's name is hidden rather than being public record it's implied that she's changed her name um so they investigate that, and again, they find her too late as a result of this. Um, but obviously there's no almond there, so that particular part of the scene never happens. There's a bit more focus on like the growing unrest. Uh, Finch continues to investigate the connections between the St. Mary's virus. The St. Mary's virus is what caused the dystopia in this world. Um sort of america's wars in the middle east uh very much implied to be sort of the second gulf war the iraq and afghanistan campaigns that's implied to be sort of like what has led to their own um misfortunes um prothero in one of his speeches earlier on describes america as basically uh, the world's largest leper colony um he says that they've got plague and other things and it's implied that. Um, The St. Mary's virus was uh, a virus that was unleashed by um, radical religious extremists. Um, So making a clear connection to sort of um, the Muslim extremist terrorism um, that we saw in the early 2000s. Dietrich does a show parodying Sutler. He uses... um, Yachty Sax to do it which is notable in Britain as being the theme song for Benny Hill who was an old uh comedian who was famous for doing sped up chase sequences um which they use in the sh- in the the skit um it's Dietrich's act of like open rebellion um which I find very interesting um I think it's a great addition to 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 show that the people are taking more of a stance against the government and Dietrich being used as the character to sort of exemplify that is a great idea. Um, however, that then gets him arrested by Creedy. Um, Evie hides under the bed in a similar manner to how she did when her parents were arrested. Um, but this time she doesn't cry out like she did when she was a child, which she tried, cried out then, she got found. Now she doesn't, but she does watch Um, Dietrich be hauled off never to be seen again Uh, she tries to escape and is captured um, by seemingly one of the finger men uh, and arrives in the uh, the prison uh, sequence there are some extra lines in Valerie's letter um, but nothing that really changes it too drastically just sort of exemplifying the uh, the elements of the Norse fire government, things like the articles of Allegiance and uh rendition and and things like that it's it's some more on the nose um terrorism war on terror allegories um but for the most part most of Valerie's dialogue um uh, which we actually see acted out um most of the sequence in her letter is is kept relatively unchanged, which I do like. Um, because, like I said, it's it, to me, it's the most important part of the whole story. Um, so I like that it's all kept. We do get the the aftermath, um, where Evie and V confront, uh, Evie confronts V over his actions. Um, but V is much more compassionate to Evie in this version than he ever was in the comic. Um, for his role in the lie, he actually says that it hurt him to do it. Um, and we also get a direct mirror um it's a bit it's a bit blatant but they do directly intercut scenes of V's own transformation from Delia's flashbacks um that we saw earlier in the film with um excuse me i've got hiccups um with Evie's own transformation on the rooftop um you know one born in fire one born in water in the rain um I looked that up online. Apparently it's um the fire is more of a symbol of like destruction and vengeance. Um whereas the uh the water is a sign of uh forgiveness and knowledge. Um suggesting the different tones the two characters are ta- going to take. Um Evie can't stay with V in the aftermath, so she does leave, um, which we see as something that actually kind of breaks V. You see him take his mask off and cry. Um, But he does ask to see her once more before the 5th, which she agrees to. Um, Suttler increases the fear propaganda. He says he wants, um, you know, everyone on the TV all the time to see knowledge of just how bad the rest of the world is and how good the things are in the UK, by comparison, because of the Norse fire government. Um, But... We do kind of see it backfiring. We see the people not believing it. Um, We see Evie kind of questioning it. Pointing out that one of the reporters blinks a lot when she tells a story that she knows is a lie. Um, Which was mentioned earlier in the movie. And we see her acknowledge that again while watching the the reporter. Uh, Finch. Meets with V. V is posing as someone called William Rookwood, who they're a former fingerman who disappeared years ago and who they're investigating because of his link to St. Mary's. Um, Rookwood says that the experiments at Lark Hill, authorized by Sutler, led to the creation of St. Mary's, which Creedy then suggested deploying in Britain rather than abroad to create, um, you know, an antagonistic other. which then gave the norse fire an excuse to try and seize power and enabled them to win in a landslide and then after doing so uh, they were able to provide a cure for st mary's um i kind of like this edition um i do think it's <sighs> it portrays the norse fires much more evil than they ever were in the comic book. Um, But it reminds me of a similarity in some of Moore's other work, especially Watchmen, um, with the idea of there being, you know, in Watchmen, the Cold War comes to an end because of Ozymandias' manipulations to make them think that there is an other that is more important than their own petty squabbles, Um, you know, calling the Cold War a petty squabble. Um, you know, in the in the comic book it's the, the alien squid, the threat of an alien invasion. In the film it's the um it's Dr. Manhattan that he uses as the other. So in this, you know, the the use of the St. Mary's becomes almost like a a false flag uh black ops operation, which they can then use to to justify cracking down on um you know minority groups you know it's up there as one of the there's a lot of uh, common conspiracy theories about certain things in the uh, early 2000s especially 9-11 um, suggesting that they follow this pattern so it's it's not unheard of as an idea yeah Rookwood tells Finch to spy on Creedy And he says, once I'm aware, once I believe that Creedy can't pick his nose without you knowing about it, I'll contact you again. Um, However, Finch later learns that obviously V was Rookwood and resolves to to hunt him down. Um, But it works because we know that Creedy's being spied on by the ear and the eye. Um, V approaches Creedy and uses the fact that. Creedy knows he's being spied on to manipulate him against Sutler. He says Sutler's been hidden underground um, presumably for a while and he knows that Creedy has men that will be able to get to Sutler and he wants Sutler. Um, v then sends masks throughout the city in a similar way to what he did at the um, at Jordan Tower. Many of them get seized but several hundred thousand go out um, which leads to chaos and anarchy as people start wearing them. Uh, and Sutler starts to crack down on the people um, with greater fingerman patrols and things like that. We even see a fingerman kill the girl with the glasses while she's spray painting or dressed as V. Um, and then he's then killed. He's then be- he's then beaten by a mob and implied to be killed. You know, regardless of the fact he's a fingerman, he he shot a little girl, so they they beat him um finch goes to lark hill um but there's no lsd this time and he sort of examines it and he he said he had a, a moment when he was at lark hill where we could sort of see everything falling into place um and we see we get a great montage of the events in the film the events in the flashbacks and the events still to come in the film um sort of saying he can kind of see all of it and see or almost see the pattern um, and even though he doesn't know what's going to happen he has a very good idea and it's a very good scene actually it's quite well shot, it's well scored um, Evie comes back to V on the the dawn of the what well, I think it's the 4th actually um, and he gifts everything to her saying that the choice belongs to the people of a new world expecting that You know, he's kind of hinting that he expects to die. Um, He shows her the train and says that she has to be the one to push the trigger on it. Um, Sutler makes uh, an address on the television that night. But we see from the houses that no one is watching him this time. Contrasting it with V's own address later on, uh, earlier on in the film, where everyone was watching. Um, Creedy brings Sutler to V and kills him. Um, v then ch- uh, fights Creedy and his men. He gets shot multiple times despite wearing body armor, um, but he survives, manages to kill Creedy and all of his men, and returns to Evie and proclaims his love for her before dying in his ar- in her arms. Um, Finch finds Evie after V has died um, by following the train system. Um, and watches V get laid on the train and Evie start the train. Uh, A whole load of people march on Westminster dressed as V in the masks and the robes that he sent out and the soldiers being unable to contact any of the party leaders stand down. Um, She starts the train. Finch doesn't stop her. They go to the roof and they watch as Parliament is destroyed with the 1812 Overture playing again. Uh, More fireworks um, just as before. And Finch asks her who he was, and she says he was everyone. Um, he was all of us. And as she's saying this, the crowd unmasked themselves, revealing all of the people, revealing Dominic, revealing, uh, I think Hugo Weaving is even in there as a cameo, um, and even several dead characters, such as the girl with the glasses, Dietrich, Valerie, Ruth... Um, And yeah, it's a nice... It's a more hopeful message to end on. Um, But yeah, there are distinct differences between them. Alan Moore, who I should say, has not watched the film. He hasn't seen the films of any of his adaptations of his work. Um, But he had read the script. He said, The movie has been turned into a Bush-era parable by people too timid to set a political satire in their own country. It's a thwarted and frustrated and largely impotent American liberal fantasy of someone with American liberal values standing up against a state run by neoconservatives, which is not what the comic V for Vendetta was about. It was about fascism, it was about anarchy, it was about England. Uh, he later added that if the Wachowskis wanted to protest about what was going on in the United States, they should have used a political narrative that directly addressed the issues of the United States the Wachowskis uh, produced the film they didn't direct it Um, they also helped write the screenplay but it was directed by uh, James McTeague it was his first film after being uh, an assistant director on many things including the Matrix trilogy and Star Wars Episode 2 uh, producer Joel Silver, Joel Silver, um, revealed that he identifies the V of the comics as a, a clear-cut superhero, uh, a quote, master adventure who pretty much saves the world, which is a simplification that went against Moore's own statements about V's role in the story, and also is one that left me scratching my head when I read it, because I'm like, that's not how V's presented at all. Um... David Lloyd, however, was uh, more positive about the... Adaptation. He said it's a terrific film. The most extraordinary thing about it for me was seeing scenes that I'd worked on and crafted for maximum effect in the book translated to film with the same degree of care and effect. The transformation scene between Natalie Portman and Hugo Weaving is just great. And if you happen to be one of those people who admires the original so much that changes to it will automatically turn you off, then you may dislike the film. But if you enjoyed the original and can accept an adaptation that is different to the source material, but even equally as powerful, then you'll be as impressed as I was with it. One of Alan Moore's main criticisms for the film, um, was changing the, the anarchy versus fascism, um, structure of the original novel. Uh, he saw it as an exploration of American neoliberalism versus American neoconservatism, um, which is somewhat accurate. There is a very strong message of, uh, these messages, messages about freedom, um, but I wouldn't say that the um the government in the film, the Norse Fire government, is neoconservative, especially. They are still very much fascists. They still rounded up all the, the blacks and the gays and the immigrants and the religious minorities and put them into camps. Um you know, that aspect of the law is Still very much there, um, and if anything, the the reduction to them as more stereotypical villains uh, in the film, um, you know, where they they have less rounded personalities. Um, you know, we don't get to, for example, to see any of their wives. You know, or or any further development beyond their role as party members, with the exception of Finch and maybe Stone, um, who are not really party members. They're just police officers. Um, And, you know, uh, Finch and Dominic are shown to be somewhat... um, seretipitous in some of their actions they use a scrambler device so that they can't be so some of their conversations can't be recorded while they're discussing their investigations into to larkhill and st mary's so um but while the government is perhaps more sinister and the film is in the same time um you know less human you know the the complexities to their characters the you know for example prothero prothero with his uh his his love of trains and his love of dolls and being a former military man you know he's he's turned from that into like a a fox news style mouthpiece um you know Susan isn't as as timid as he is in the comics. Sutler is much more outspoken and much more vitriolic um and and then obviously there's the the complete absence of fate. Um, v as well being uh, more violence um, in the comic. And, you know, he's he's less compassionate to who he kills, um, with the exception of Delia. Delia is still treated relatively nicely by V in both versions. But he's also much, um, much kinder to Evie. Um, like I said, V in the comic can be quite abusive to Evie at times. Um, you know, straight up abandoning her when she makes the the possible link you know, sort of a wishful link that he's in fact her father. Um, Dietrich's another character who's very much changed from Gordon in the novel um, to the character of Dietrich. Dietrich... A lot of it came from Stephen Fry and his own anti-government and uh, leanings and his own stance as an out-gay man. Um, And it was a very, very interesting choice um, to portray Dietrich that way. I think it works better, and I think his relationship with Evie is better as a result. Um, Like I said, the, the depiction of Gordon in the comic is... Somewhat problematic, um, but yeah, all of these changes just infuriated Alan Moore. He said that, um, the fascist government in the work had been in V for Vendetta had been defanged. It was the exact quote he used defanged, and he refused to have any credit for this film. And as a result, it refused all credit with any films going forward. It also broke down. Um, the last tenuous gasp of his relationship with um, DC Comics because the film came out under Warner Brothers, uh, which were owned by DC Comics, and Joel Silver stated um, that um, Alan Moore had given his blessing to the film, which Alan Moore vehemently denied and actually sued Joel Silver to get a retraction, um, which I don't think ever officially happened. Um So, yeah, that broke down the last lingering uh, thread of a relationship that he had with DC Comics, which was already tenuous due to publication rights for Watchmen. Um, So, yeah, this, this film led Alan Moore to kind of retreat away from any future film adaptations of his work. Um, The only one that followed this was Watchmen. There was an animated version of the Killing Joke movie, which is uh, controversial for its own reasons, Um, mainly the addition of um, a side story with Batgirl, um, which involves a romantic link between her and Batman, um, which many, many, many people rightfully complained about. Um, But as far as the actual adaptation of the Killing Joke portion of the story, it's, um, that bit is handled relatively well. So, although, as I've said before, the killing joke does have its own issues. For example, the fridging of Batgirl. Um, I do think though, a lot of the changes were made, that were made for the adaptation of Watchmen to turn it into a film, work for the medium of film. Um, you know, film is a medium that generates a much larger, audience and impact than comic books for starters um so v had to be a more likable protagonist um v was given the the superhero powers to sort of echo the the wave of superhero films that were sweeping the mainstream at the time with spider-man and uh, x-men so those changes are somewhat justified and some of the, you know, and the, the, the changes to the of the political stances do reflect what we were seeing in the world at the time with the war on terror and uh, specifically the Bush government in America and the Blair government in the UK and the sort of reactions that they were getting from people um, along with the, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, other changes like streamlining Creed's involvement um and Finch and the backstabbing between them all um works for the film. I think, you know, the a lot of the scenes with Harper and Hella were using the expansive cast of the comic. Um the film you don't have that much leeway to develop that many characters. Um So, sort of, tightening the screws on it and using just the essential ones, I think, worked. Um, I don't think any of the changes drastically changed the story itself. I think, to me, the most important parts of the work are still there. The idea that, um, you know, an authoritarian and corrupt government should be... Opposed and overthrown. Um, the the key message of. Um, Valerie's letter about integrity. And how in that last inch of integrity. You are free. Um, you know. And your principles. And what they matter to. You know. How much they matter to you. And how, how you should stand up for them. All of that is there. And the film introduces. Some great elements of its own. For example, the quote um, by V from the film, um, people should not be afraid of their governments, governments should be afraid of their people. That's a great line that encompasses a lot of, um, you know, a lot of post-2000s political discourse, both in America and Britain, um, with some of the governments we've had. A lot of people do feel, afraid of the government and the idea that no the government should be afraid of us we're the people that vote them in we're the people that give them power we're the people that can take their power away so i think a lot of that was done well i think the addition of the saint mary's subplot it explains how norse fire came to power in a more believable way than having a second world war, uh, a third world war, sorry, a nuclear war. And I think that's, that's fair. I think that's necessary for the adaptation. Um, And it gives the experiments at Lark Hill a bit more of a purpose than they had in the original comic. Um, You know, it was a hormonal injection in the comic um but we don't know why it was being done and you know the comic sort of the film reveals that oh it was the the test bed for this you know biogenics program you know uh you know a chemical a biological warfare agent um which we tested on political undesirables um which is also something that's happened in history again especially in american history certain drugs were tested on um you know Black people um, in the guise of vaccinations. (sighs) Hence a lot of distrust of American vaccinations, I suppose. um, Especially among the black community. I, I do think the film is good. I think the film stands sort of on its own as well as being an adaptation of the comic, I think it stands as a pretty decent film in its own right. Um, it is a good, a good film. It's got some very tightly paced action sequences, some very well done action sequences. I think the, um, the central performance of Hugo Weaving as um, V is, is mesmerizing. He is a, a captivating character in the film. Um, where V perhaps isn't in the comic you know in the comic V is you know in some respects downright despicable um, almost, not quite to the level of uh, the villains he's fighting he's he's definitely the lesser of two evils but you know you can't say you you feel sorry for him dying at the end Um <sighs> I do think that the love, the suggested love story was a bit unnecessary. It seems like that was sort of tacked on because it's kind of expected in Hollywood films. But yeah, I do think the film is worth your time. I think the comic is worth your time. I think um, they're both worth experiencing at least once. Of the two, though, I think if I had to pick, I'd probably pick the film. I do find the film just more interesting in some ways. The greater focus on the people, the more charismatic lead in V. And, you know, the way the way that Evie is less helpless um, as well is a great addition. You know, Evie in the comics is a young girl. She's 16, 17 throughout most of it. You know, she, I think she's implied to be sort of on the cusp of 18 towards the end so she's still a a child in in quite a lot of respects whereas Evie in the the film is a, a young woman um and it makes her a more a more capable and a much more stronger character and remove some of the some of the issues that she has in the um in the comic like the 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 the, the daddy issues i hate the term daddy issues but the um the issues that she has with male uh father figures um you know both V and gordon and her own father so yeah making her a stronger character is definitely a point in the uh the film's favor um I don't think it deserves the ire it got from Alan Moore. I think I'm more inclined to agree with David Lloyd in appreciating it as a film in its own right. I definitely think it's the best adaptation of Alan Moore's work to film. Um, As much as I will defend Watchmen um, to some of my peers, um, Watchmen is still inferior to the graphic novel. Um, the, The Watchmen graphic novel is still far better Than the Watchmen film. Um, But I would say. Would I say V for Vendetta the film is better than the graphic novel? (sighs) Perhaps not better. But just as good. But for different reasons. I think if you were to compare the. You know how well it adapted the story of V for Vendetta. The. The political message of V Vendetta the comic is probably is probably better the, the, the writing in V for Vendetta is, is powerful in places um, as a lot of Alan Moore's writing is but the film has its own merit and it stands on its own merit so yeah I do think it's do you think it's a it's a great film it's a great um adaptation you know it's a it's a good experience as well so thank you for listening once again um much shorter one than some previous episodes recently. Um, I'm, as much as I enjoy making some of the, the larger topics that I think I can talk for ages about, I think um, while I could talk more about Alan Moore and his work, um, you know, I could do a similar sort of analysis within this episode to Watchmen, for example. Um, I do think the tight focus on something like Viva Vendetta. Um, create something different and I think some of the previous episodes have kind of gotten away from me in terms of how long they've been Um, so uh, having an episode like this that's a bit shorter hopefully you will appreciate it Um, if people would like longer episodes or shorter episodes please please you know, let me know what what you want. Um, as much as I'm doing this for myself, I'm also, you know, encouraging listeners. Um, there's no real quick fire geek talking points to do this week. Um, usually, with those, I try and save things that maybe aren't enough for a full episode. The only real recent news, besides the Morbius trailer, which I will go more in depth on probably in the next episode. Um, as to how it may relate to some other things. Um, The only other real nerd news story of uh, interest in Geek Circles is the the allegations made by Ruby Rose towards the CW. Um, CW have responded, but I do want to look at those more before I really uh, comment upon them. Um, there's an article, um, a, a Google document going around documenting um, a lot of issues with the CW, um, uh, both of the Arrowverse and Supernatural and some of their other shows such as Riverdale. Um, it might be enough to turn an episode into it, uh, you know, to focus an episode on next year. I'm not sure. I want to have a, a real look through this stuff first. Um, before I decide to comment on it because it's a bit charged shall we say Um, so I'm kind of leaving that one for now Um, next episode will be out in two weeks from today Um, so it's the early December so that's the 20th of November Um, and As I said before, I did have a plan for it previously, um, but that involved a a deadline, which I've been unable to meet, unfortunately. Um, So instead, I'm going to be looking at Eternals, which is the latest offering from Marvel Studios. Um, It's having a bit of a, a mixed reception. It's the first Marvel film that's really had a mixed reception for a while. Um, among critics um, and I'm very very interested to sort of watch it and experience it for myself, it's not releasing until um, tomorrow as I'm recording this, which is the 5th of November um, so I, I have my ticket booked I'm very much looking forward to it, um, I think the internals are very interesting characters from the comics very interesting concept from the comics and um, So I'm going to be looking at sort of some of their comic book origins, but I'm more going to be focusing on how it relates to the MCU as a whole. And so that's what I'm going to be covering in the next episode. Um, After that is just one more episode this year, um, which is on December the 4th. Um, and that episode is a look uh, I can't remember if I'd said it before it's going to be a look on Lord of the Rings 20 years afterwards um, you know 20 years out from the original Lord of the Rings films um, the original Lord of the Rings films as if there were others um, I mean there are but there's previous ones but we don't count those um, but yeah Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, turns 20 years old this year um, so I'm going to be having a a good look back on them and viewing them with a more modern eye and hopefully less of a hopefully I can take the nostalgia goggles off and give them a a good solid evaluation. Um, and you know, um, I'm going to look through the appendixes as well and uh, on all the extended cut uh, content so to see if there's anything in there worth discussing and talking about. Um, You know, because a lot of people won't look through that stuff. Um, So, yeah, um, after that, um, the plan for next year is still up in the air. It's going to become a bit more concrete moving forward. And obviously I will have a final um, layout by that December 4th episode explaining exactly what the plan is for next year. I was thinking of coming back sort of towards the end of January um, to do an episode from there, but I'm actually thinking that I might take all of January off and in that time work on transitioning the podcast to YouTube um, and getting all the existing episodes up on there so that when new episodes release, they can release in the podcast format on whatever... um, whatever application you're listening to this on or and on youtube as well um just because many people have commented to me that they would like to listen to it on there um so that's going to be something that i address for some of the uh early part of next year um i have many many topics in mind for the future um some more obscure some things I just want to talk about that I think might be fun to talk about um, and obviously you know film universes are continuing there's a lot of good films coming up and ideas to discuss so hopefully you'll join me through all of it. Um, all the social media links will be up in a minute. Um, please reach out and get in touch with me if you have anything you want to say uh, any feedback you want to give me. It's always welcome. And uh, until next time, look after yourselves. Take care. Um, look after your, your mental health and your physical health. Both just as important as each other. Um, wear a mask if you need to. Um, take care of yourself. Get the vaccine if you're able. And, yeah, hopefully you can all join me again next episode. Thank you, as always, for joining me here at Gardo Goes Geek. I have been your host, Gardo. If you would like to discuss the topic of this episode or any other episode with me, or would perhaps like to discuss topics that you might like me to cover in a future episode, then, as always, I invite you to reach out and contact me. I can be found at Gardo on Reddit, at Gardo Hedgehog on Twitter, or at Gardo on Instagram. I look forward to any discussions that you wish to bring to me. And until next time, take care of yourselves.